either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Once again this week, we've got a couple of big releases at the top and some smaller movies. Definitely worth talking about, though, after that. And we'll run them down. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com. Let's start with a return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the saga of the Eternals, a race of immortal beings who lived on Earth and shaped its history and civilizations. Eternals. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. How long do we have? Seven days. Well, this marks the return of another celebrated, more independent filmmaker, this time Chloe Zhao, stepping into the superhero franchise. And she, of course, just won an Oscar for Nomadland. And now she's back in a big, expansive movie that has maybe too many characters and maybe too much going on. I think, you know, just the plot synopsis is enough to tell you that's not a plot. That's a description of the characters, which are a bunch of people who affect the, you know, history of the world. And that's part of the problem is it really needed to narrow down what it was saying and who was saying it. First of all, there are just too many characters. Now, those characters, they're great actors who are playing these characters. And that goes a long way to help make the runtime feel a little bit less burdensome, big. It's too long. It's just too long. Yeah, let's run down some of the cast. We've got Angelina Jolie and Salma Hayek and Richard Madden and Kit Harington and Brian Tyree Henry and Barry Keegan, who you love so much, um, Kamal Nanjani, who pumped up for this. Uh, so you've got, yeah, like you mentioned, talented actors in these roles, but the problem is they're all new to us and we're not invested, and there are so many to try to get to know in such a short time before we're expected to care about them. Exactly, because you could compare it in a way to Civil War, which also had a massive, massive cast and a very big runtime. But the difference is that we already knew who all of those characters were. You know, you didn't need a close-up for us to know. We could just glimpse the uniform and we knew which person it was. We knew who, if we were rooting for them or if we weren't rooting for them. I mean, they, we already had their backstory and we were invested in those characters. Well, we, we don't know any of these people yet. They don't give you enough time with each character to get to know them. This would have made a great series, to be honest with you. But what they needed to do was was trim the number of Eternals to start with. And then also, problematically, there's a lot of extra time spent watching them think. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so the the pace and the action, which is, I mean, the action is great. It looks great. It's just that there's just so much downtime in between the action sequences that it slows to a crawl, a movie that's already too long. It centers around the Eternals who've been fighting the Deviants, right, for forever again, across time and space. And they think they've won, and then suddenly some of the Eternals start being hunted one by one separately, so they've got to come together. Uh, to fight again as a team. And I guess for anyone that's been following the Marvel superhero movies, the question comes into play, where have you guys been all this time? And they try to get around that fact. They do. And and really, I mean, the bigger story is sort of that. It's 
this group of people and, and who they follow, whose guidance they follow, and what sense that makes and why it's taken them 7,000 years to decide that they are just, you know, we just like earthlings. We should just be nice to earthlings. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's not that that's a bad story. It's just that it takes too long for them to tell it. I feel like I'm being too negative. It's a gorgeous movie. I mean, it's Chloe Zhao, so it looks yeah. it looks so, so beautiful. Um, and it's one, another one, if you're going to go, it a big screen would be very helpful and necessary. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely agreed. And of course, being Marvel, there are two two post credits stingers. But even those, even though the individual scenes are interesting, they just introduce more characters that you don't know. I mean, that's really, I think, a big, big part of the problem. Although there are moments in the film where these actors just interact with each other, where you feel that this group of people has a backstory and they have chemistry together. And those moments are great. They're often very funny. They're sometimes really touching, but uh, they're too few and far between. And, And they feel like they know each other, but you never feel like you know them. Yeah, and it's about two hours and 35 minutes because... As you say, you got to wait till the very end because you know you got two stingers coming. And if you're going to take the younger kids, I-, I could see some boredom setting in for this one because, like, we keep going back to this fact: they don't already know these these superheroes. And the other problem is that the two leads, Gemma Chan and Richard Madden, no relation, uh, <laughs> they're the weakest of the performers. They're the weakest of the actors, and they're the least compelling stage presences. Which is a problem since, you know, it's not that they have that much more screen time than everybody else. It's pretty well divided, but they are just less interesting and they carry more of the story. And that is Eternals in theaters now. Yeah, if you're interested, you want to go see it on the big screen. Next is a dive into the life of Princess Diana during her Christmas holidays with the royal family. At the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England, Diana decides to leave her marriage to Prince Charles. This is Spencer. Mommy, what's happened to make you so sad? Here, in this house, there is no future. Past and the present are the same thing. Diana, they can't change. You have to change. You have to be able to do things you hate. You hate? There has to be two of you. There's the real one (laughs) and the one they take pictures of. Diana, for the good of the country. I would just first like to say that's the best movie poster I have seen in years. Fantastic. Fantastic movie poster. Because much like the movie itself, it says so much with so little. All you need is a picture, right? This movie does a lot with visual storytelling, but a great script as well. It's director Pablo Lorraine who did sort of this the same thing, very similar thing with Jackie Kennedy in the movie Jackie a few years ago, which which benefited from a great lead performance from Natalie Portman. But this is not someone who is interested in a, a big biography starting as a little girl the whole life. No, not interested in that at, at all. Because much like Jackie, you come to this with certain a lot, probably, knowledge uh, and and feelings about the subject, Princess Diana, and that he uses that to give you an entirely new way to think about 
her life. It's it's right away at the very beginning. He puts text on screen that uh, introduces this as a fable, and it's a reimagining. Really, just centers on a few days, as the synopsis said, over the Christmas holidays. Uh, about ten years into the marriage, the boys are still young. Uh, leading up to the time when she decides to leave the marriage. And uh, it's driven by, as Jackie was, a tremendous lead performance. This is Kristen Stewart. And if you haven't been paying attention to a lot of the smaller movies that she's done since Twilight, very good performances, then you're gonna, you may be surprised when she starts getting the nominations that she is surely going to get for this because she is tremendous. And a movie like this is really going to rise and fall on the lead performance. The entire ensemble is great, uh, but she she is fantastic. You start with the mannerisms, the the shoulder shrug, the head tilt, got those down. The the lithe, graceful movements, even the voice. I mean, a lot of American actors can have trouble with accents. She she does it very well here, as well as the manner of speaking. So you got that down. But more than that, she just embodies the the desperation that Diana was feeling and 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 you feel it too because the the fishbowl that she was under and the the expectations the constant scrutiny of the royal family and everyone that worked for them uh, you, you definitely definitely feel it and it it becomes a bit a, a bit surreal because as the movie goes on and as prince charles's uh, a longtime affair with camilla parker bowles is impossible to ignore. She's uh, Diana starts seeing visions in her dreams of Anne Boleyn, and this really furthers her feeling that she really doesn't have any future anymore. It's just the past and the present is all that matters. And how and she comes to realize that her entire life, really, since she's coming to the royal family, is just currency for their public persona. And you, you really feel the, the stranglehold that they have on her and how she was just suffocating under it. And also a, a big nod to, I believe his name is Johnny Greenwood, who did the score. Fantastic score in this movie. I fully expect it to get an Oscar nomination as well. It's, it's sort of disorienting. It's not quite a horror score, but it's almost disorienting and, and Hitchcockian and just getting keeping you off balance just a little bit in those scenes where she is just so in such desperate straits. And as I said, the ensemble is great. Timothy Spall, the great Timothy Spall, plays a new head of security who seems to be lurking around every corner if she's one minute late to something or maybe wears the wrong outfit that's been picked out for her. And then the always great Sally Hawkins uh, is one of Diana's dressers and who is really the only seems to be the only friend she has in her life as a royal, and then this dresser is sent away, I guess be, seemingly because that she's a friend. Uh, always great to see Sally Hawkins. And just front to back, it's a great ensemble, and, and I, sh- I haven't even mentioned the uh, screenwriter is Stephen Knight, who has done some fantastic work. Yeah, he got an Oscar nomination for Eastern Promises, the David Cronenberg movie. He also has made a couple of, written a couple of really bad movies, so he can be yes. or miss, so it's great to see him back on top of his game. Yeah, because the, there's it's not a, a verbose movie, but boy, every bit of dialogue seems to really count, and, and it's just as much liable to say something visually as it is with dialogue. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really well worth seeing. You know, it's it's clear that the filmmakers aren't worried about alienating 
royal watchers, royal fans. They've got this vision, they're committed to it, and they're, they have it fleshed out by uh, everybody involved in the project, especially Kristen Stewart. So big big recommendation for Spencer. I think just right from the get-go that he calls it a fable. He does not call it a fairy tale. It's the opposite of a princess story, although it is a princess story. It's a cautionary tale. Yeah, exactly right. Anytime you have a movie introduced by a, a text like that, it's obviously very important and put there for a reason. That's exactly right. It's not a fairy tale, as people grow up and, and are taught that the princess stories are. Uh, he says it's a fable from a from a, tra- a sad, tragic story, and that's the way it's framed out. And uh, especially if you if you've seen his earlier work, if you've seen Jackie, you already know sort of how this is going to play out, how it's going to be approached. But uh, this is a, a totally different story entirely, and just a new way to think about uh, a woman who became a, a really a worldwide obsession. And uh, it's called Spencer in theaters now. Next is the latest from one of our favorite independent filmmakers, Jim Cummings. This is a story of a married Hollywood agent receiving a mysterious letter for an anonymous sexual encounter and becoming ensnared in a sinister world of lying, infidelity, and digital data. It's called The Beta Test. Dude, this could be anybody. All those clicks, all those likes from then all the way till now, that's all been saved by these companies. It's the ultimate clickbait, thirst trap. Now I'm suspicious of everyone. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's my wife. Are you doing this to me? No. Hey, there he is. Hi, my name is Jordan Hines. I'm an ex-lieutenant. I never come down here. My rent is always on time. I'm one of those guys you never have to worry about. I didn't complain when people started Airbnb-ing out their apartments or when the hot tub was cold for a month. I'm not uncomfortable. My clients enjoy spending time with me. How are you going to look tomorrow when you come in? How are you going to convince me today that you're better at your job tomorrow, Jacqueline? Jim Cummings is the writer-director here, the co-writer and director, with P.J. McCabe, who also is in the cast as um, the the best friend who is there when uh, Jim Cummings' character gets this strange invitation and decides to take it. It's such a—I mean, the, the film is such an interesting combination of Eyes Wide Shut and Robert Altman's The Player— you know, Eyes Wide Shut, if it were a scathing satire, because this is definitely a comedy. I mean, there is a, well, there's there's a, a murder in the opening sequence. I mean, it's it's a thriller and it's a mystery, right? But at the same time, the the main part of it, to me, is not exactly the, the, the thriller plot. It's the way Jim Cummings and the film eviscerate uh, Hollywood. Uh, in the way, in the same way that the film The Player did, you know, he plays he plays an agent. The agency are it's clearly that they don't serve any purpose. They're just constantly looking for new ways to bilk people out of their money. They don't actually do anything. In the way, like the the machinations inside the office are hilarious. That's what yeah, that's what struck me. It almost became it reminded me of. American Psycho after a while. The guys in American Psycho never did anything. They talked about accounts a lot. How's that account? They never did anything. And that's, these guys are, con- and, and women in this office are constantly trying to justify their existence. And they're worried about being written out of the picture because they're not going to be useful anymore. The other thing that's great, though, is that especially Jim Cummings' character in particular states it. Oh, yeah. They're all so annoyed that they're living in a post-Weinstein world. They are all so annoyed. And a couple of the best scenes are these near breakdowns that, that Jim Cummings' character has 
specifically about that. I mean, and that's one of the things that one of the really the driving force of this movie, although it's incredibly well directed and it's very, very cleverly written and it's funny and it's weird. And it's one of those movies that you never have any idea what's going to happen next. I want to give it credit for all of those things. But Jim Cummings performance is perfect. And one of the weird things about that is that it's very similar to the last two performances that I've seen him do. <laughs> He's got a type of character that he is perfect for portraying. If you haven't seen any of his films, you should see Thunder Road and then pretty much Thunder Road made into a werewolf movie called The The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Both so entertaining, but yeah, he's kind of this same character, this guy. You described it perfectly. He's he's about to have a nervous breakdown every minute and then and then he's he's very calm in the next minute. You just never know when he's going to be manic. Yeah, and it and in this one and in in each of the films, he's like a degree less likable. And in this one, he's almost entirely loathsome. And yet, there's something about him that you maybe you root for, like you just can't quite abandon him. It's just a it's just an amazing performance. Yeah, and a and such a, a statement on on Hollywood, as you mentioned, and literally and metaphorically, because with this invitation that he gets. You could take that as a metaphor for the screwing over that people are always getting done to them and done to done and doing to other people in Hollywood. But also, you mentioned Weinstein for the very literal sexual harassment that we know has just run rampant for decades. There's only really one character in the entire film that kind of represents reality, like a real human being, this this woman who works in the office. And when you finally see her and see everything through her eyes, I think the whole movie changes. And again, I think it changes from really being a mystery about these purple envelopes to being an investigation of Hollywood and the way Hollywood works, which makes it sound less fun than it is. It's fun. (laughs) It is. It really is fun. Uh, And we recommend it uh, as well as everything that uh, Jim Cummings has done so far. Uh, It's in theaters now called The Beta Test. Really liked it. Going to Apple TV next for the latest from GD National Treasure Tom Hanks on a post-apocalyptic Earth. A robot built to protect the life of his creator's beloved dog learns about life, love, friendship, and what it means to be human in Finch. We should be safe once we get into the mountains. But things will happen. Like 150-degree heat, UV radiation, and people. Fighting in the shadows. Go now! Do you think we'll make it? Not without my team. What we do, we do together. I believe in you, Finch. Well, if you haven't guessed, Tom Hanks is Finch. And the robot, voiced by Caleb Landry-Jones, by the way, is he a Wilson? Uh, He could be a Wilson, but you also throw a dog in here. So at the risk of being, I feel like my comparisons are are getting a little bit too movie nerdy, but I couldn't help it. This movie is a combination of The Road and Short Circuit. And if you had told me any time prior to today that somebody could make those two movies that could not have any less to do with each other into a single movie, and that's really what it is because it's not nearly as as grim and dire as The Road. No, and Uh, no, no one saw The Road, but it is grim. Yeah, it's like the it's like the most unhappy movie ever made. Um, and and short circuit is just dumb. But <laughs> with a robot, that's right. Who's Johnny? <laughs> but it it you know so it's just a, a weird combination of those two things. Tom Hanks, he's um uh, he's an inventor 
and he's he's not exactly the last man on earth, but he's very close to being the last man on earth. And essentially what it is, which very much is like the road, is that instead of a, a son, he's got this dog. And he knows this dog is going to outlive him. Mm-hmm. And he, he needs to do something. He's desperate to make sure that the dog is not left to its own devices in this post-apocalyptic world. So he makes this robot. And the, the robot, uh, as they kind of go through life, you know, on the road... Because they, they have to leave where they are stationed because of, of, of weather, post-apocalyptic weather. They have to try to find someplace else. So it's a road trip movie, essentially. And the robot is uh, quirky and goofy and and, uh, and teaches Finch a little bit about teamwork and about trust and about love. And it could have been, I think, really schmaltzy and dumb were it not for that that Tom Hanks... I mean, he's just Tom Hanks. I mean, when does he not turn in a really good performance? Also, and it took me a minute to realize who the voice was, and I love Caleb Landry Jones, but he just nails it. He's he's tender without being cloying. He's never like sort of, you know, laugh out loud goofy. He seems very human. And that and also the, the creature design, the robot design, which is really great, kind of gives you if um, Iron Giant had, like, a, an uncoordinated, goofy cousin. <laughs> the, the director here is Miguel Sapochnik from Game of Thrones. It also reminded me a little bit, and I think this was an Apple TV production as well, George Clooney's uh, Midnight Sky, it, it, which was a lot more serious and heavy than this is, but it reminded me a little bit of that. But uh, Tom Hanks, and you know, you, you at least you usually know if it's Tom Hanks, it's going to be solid. It's going to be watchable as this is as well, uh, but you'll probably see some elements that you remember that remind you of other movies, but still, definitely uh, enjoyable and entertaining. If you have Apple TV, it is on now. It's called Finch. How about an action thriller in theaters? A reformed sociopath journeys to a remote island to investigate the mystery behind his brother's demise, but soon ends up facing off with more than he bargained for. It's dangerous. Dr. Alderwood, you have a patient who goes by the name of Dylan Forrester. He's one of my most interesting, most promising patients. What aren't you telling me? John must have told you what's here on the island. You're being shot at? Oh, yeah. Do whatever it takes to save your enemy. people, Uncle B? They were really bad people. This is the latest from Eastwood. That would be Scott Eastwood, and he's he's trying to channel the old man. Yeah, that happens more and more, actually. And um, he plays, he's the reformed psychopath. And uh, in, the, in the early going, you know, the film uh, makes it clear that to, to sort of function in the world, he has to have a mind-numbingly boring existence. And he winds up going to his brother's funeral, and his brother has been re-trying to turn an old army base into a an island uh, B&B. That, that whole plot point is utterly ludicrous. Um, but he shows up, and uh, and he's just trying to make it through a family funeral. And, and, then, and then black ops stuff breaks out. So here's the thing, though. The, the part of this movie that works is the idea of facing your family. And then he keeps calling his therapist because his therapist is an all hours, call me whenever you need me, kind of a therapist to help him figure out how essentially not to be a psychopath. Right. 
And the therapist is Mel Gibson. And that's that's a funny idea. Right. And the therapist is is wrong because because Scott Eastwood's character, D, he's not really describing the situation because he's he has a hard time seeing the difference between the reality that he knows, which is guns blazing and the reality that his therapist is expecting, which is, you know, my family's not being nice to me. So he's not. So there is some ironic humor in those situations. And in the casting of Mel Gibson. Exactly. So that's the end of it. That's the end of the positive review. It's, <laughs> it's dumb. Most of the performances are not very good. There are several. Bomka Jansen plays a detective who is on Dee's trail. And uh, she's completely, let's say, just misused. I mean, it's, a, it's the dumbest character. And she she's an idiot. I mean, as a detective, <laughs> boy, she's dumb as a bag of rocks. Even more confusing, though, Tyrese Gibson is at the funeral, and he plays a sheriff, and then he just disappears like one reel later. It's just like I kept thinking, well, he was a pretty big star considering who's in this movie. He must come back later. Nope, gone. That role must originally have been meant for Bruce Willis. (laughs) That's a Willis move if I ever heard one. (laughs) But that's what this makes you think of. It's one of those like low to, you know, low mid-budget action movies where a bunch of people show up for a day. You know, and then you get one sort of through line of an actor. And it's not bad as those go. It's also not good as those go. And here's the thing that I dislike about it. And, and this is there's a sort of cottage industry now of characters who where the whole point of the film is just be violent, just right. be violent, like deciding you don't want to be a violent man makes you a wuss. Just be violent. And I, I got to say, maybe it's just I don't care for that as a storyline. And Scott Eastwood. Still still working on the range. So dangerous. And uh, it's not only in theaters. You can also catch it on Prime Video. But it's in theaters as well. Next, we've got a group of young and spoiled rich kids who turn into vampires after a night out, changing the course of their lives, obviously, and driving a wedge between them all. This is dead and beautiful. There is only one way to find out what we are. Notice we're not turning into ash. Bite me. You needed this, little. Why did I immediately think of Leslie Nielsen in Dead and Loving It? Remember that one? I do. And it wasn't very good, but it was better than this. Oh! Now, I think, again, the plot summary gives you a, a clue as to what's wrong with this movie. If they've been turned into vampires, are we really worried about the wedges in their friendships? Is that really the problem? I don't think it is. And I think for me, that's one of the big issues with this movie is that it's as if criticizing a culture that worships these kind of useless, incredibly wealthy, beautiful people. But it really doesn't. It really revels in these worthless, incredibly beautiful, wealthy people. Yeah, if they're already soulless, if they're already dead inside, and let's make them, yeah, I, I get what they're what they're trying to do there. The uh, co-writer and director is David Verbeek, and this is the latest from Shudder. And really, honestly, one of the, the weaker ones that Shudder has put out recently. They've been, they've been had a nice string of pretty good to really good films here for a while, and this one on the low end. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't say it doesn't say really much of anything. I think it thinks it does. It certainly is just borderline horror. Uh, It's slick. It looks nice, but it's soulless. That's on Shudder this week. Dead and beautiful. 
Next is a film based on true events. It's Tracy Beer's debut feature as director and co-writer, and it chronicles the 78-day standoff between two Mohawk communities and government forces in 1990 in Quebec. My name is Tegahandakwa. Tegahandakwa. Or you can call me Beans. Everybody does. The occupation of an ancient pine forest on the Mohawk Reserve of Ganazadage is in its fourth month. The people here are protecting a burial ground from being leveled for a golf course expansion by the neighboring town of Oka. Why did you help us? If we want respect, we have to behave respectfully. Not like other girls. Something special about you. My name is Digahandakwa. Christy Robb covered this for us at MadWolf.com, so you can check out her full review. But she really loved it, and it's a just a fantastic filmmaking debut for Tracy Deer. Yeah, this is the one to find. You know, if you're looking for something to rent, you want to see something that you haven't seen before, this is the one. It is a docudrama, so a lot of it is is archival footage, actual footage, and then a lot of it is fictionalized performance uh, centered around this adolescent girl who nobody can pronounce her name, so she goes as Beans. That's what she tells people to call her. And you watch her coming of age as she sort of tries on kind of different ways to fit in uh, during this standoff between uh, Mohawk, which is her own her own people, and the government um, of Quebec, and she's she's been transferred to a school that is primarily white. So it's a really, you know, that's a lot to take on for your first feature film, and and a docudrama is a lot to take on because you got to find that tone. That's hard. It is, and she does a remarkable job of it. The movie is really, really lovely, and it's also one of those movies where it's going to tell you things you just didn't know, so it's well worth seeking out. Yeah, especially at the bargain price of three ninety nine on Prime Video. Uh, but yeah, you can read Christie's full review at madwolf.com. It is Beans. Big recommendation. And we'll round it out with another horror entry. A recent college graduate and her estranged high school friends return to Lanterns Lane, the location of an evil urban legend, and they must fight to survive the night. This is Lanterns Lane. Who's there? I'm sure it's somebody just playing a prank on us. Rachel Willis reviewed this one for us at MadWolf.com. Rachel got the dog this week. (laughs) She got the short straw. (laughs) Well, this is listed as an action, no, uh, not a a comedy horror thriller. Okay, we're usually down for that. But yeah, Rachel thought this went nowhere. And it had those elements of almost like it's a reunion. We're going to go back and we're going to get together the old gang. And of course, something's going on at their old a uh, hot spot, and it just didn't just didn't pan out as a successful, really any of those comedy, thriller, or horror film. And you can find her full review at MadWolf.com. That is available on VOD now, called Lanterns Lane. Let's see what's cooking in the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Back in the lobby, checking in with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer. Always got his finger on the pulse of what's happening. So what's happening? Well, uh, no new release dates and no delays, so that's a good thing. So I have uh, mostly just new project announcements for you this week. Okay. Just to start things off, 
Toho released a new Godzilla vs. Hedera short for Godzilla's birthday this week. So if you're in the mood for some monster suit and model work action, you can find that one on YouTube. Godzilla's (laughs) birthday, and I forgot to go shopping. (laughs) And then moving on to some more monster action, um, XYZ Films has scored the U.S. distribution rights for Wormwood Apocalypse, which is a sequel to Wormwood Road of the Dead. Um, That'll come out sometime next year. Uh, they don't have a specific release date for it, but just early 2022. And then, just because the world constantly demands more of them, Disney is readying a new live-action adaptation of Snow White. <laughs> this one will be directed by Mark Webb and star Rachel Ziegler as Snow White and Gal Gadot as the Evil Queen. That will shoot next year for a 2020 release. And speaking of Disney and doses of horror, I guess they uh, were pretty happy with how Muppets Haunted Mansion performs for them on Disney+. Plus. They have not ready a new Muppets thing yet, although hopefully that'll be coming. But next October, they've got at least three projects hitting that are all horror-related. One of them's a new regular Haunted Mansion movie, and then, of course, there's Hocus Pocus 2. But the big one this week is Marvel is jumping into the fray with a Werewolf by Night holiday special starring Gail Garcia Bernal as the titular character. Mm. So if you want to see him turn into a werewolf, you got to wait a little less than a year for that to happen. <laughs> okay. Werewolf superhero. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> All right. Yep. To go along with, I guess, some point in the near future, we're getting Mahershala Ali as Blade. Yes. And then next year, we're also getting Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight, which is kind of a mummy superhero. All right. And then also on the horror comedy front, Broken Lizard, the comedy troupe behind Super Troopers, Club Dread, and Beer Fest, are doing a Quasimodo horror comedy. Uh, this one will see the poor lovelorn hunchback caught in a war between the Pope and the King of France, both of whom apparently want Quasimodo to kill the other one for them. Ah. I'm sure some hijinks will ensue there. Yeah, so based ripped from the headlines. <laughs> right. And uh, your Wicked adaptation is finally gaining some real steam. John M. Chu's directing that. It'll shoot next year, and they just announced that Ariana Grande has been cast as Linda the Good Witch, and Cynthia Erivo will be the Wicked Witch of the South. Just, we were just talking about this uh, at lunch a little bit ago. That was just released today, that, that uh, info? It was either today or late last night. Yeah, yeah. They both have big voices, um, so it'll uh, be interesting. And, of course, John Chu just did uh, In the Heights and had some impressive musical numbers there, so I'm on board. And the, uh, the last thing I've got for you is Taika Waititi, the man who apparently never sleeps, um, has just signed on for two more projects. Of course, he already has two movies in the can for next year. One is uh, the soccer comedy Next Goal Wins, and then he also has Thor 4. Well, now it appears he's going to direct Tower of Terror, starring Scarlett Johansson, now that you know Disney paid her what they owed her. <laughs> <laughs> We're friends again. <laughs> right. So that'll probably be his next movie, and then after that he will move on to either the already announced Flash Gordon uh, reboot or an adaptation of Alejandro Jodorowsky's trippy sci-fi epic comic book, The Inkle. Lots of work in his future. He'll bit- probably have all three of those movies shot within the next year. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You can always catch up on the latest news. Follow Daniel on socials at The Schlocketeer. Thank you much. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking ahead to next week, a couple that are getting some serious awards buzz already, starting with Belfast, ladies from Kenneth Branagh. Also, Red Notice. Double Walker. Lair. Great Whites. Is that for Shark Week? <laughs> it's not Shark Week. It ought to be with Great Whites. <laughs> Passing. Yeah, that one's getting a awards buzz for sure. 
Uh, Small Time. And Night Raiders. All right, we'll see what those are about. And maybe more next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything this week. You can always keep the conversation going. We love that. You can find us at Mad Wolf on Twitter, Mad Wolf Columbus on Facebook and Instagram, and the main website where you can find all of our written reviews from the two of us and all of our writers and our other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. You can always find us at madwolf.com. So until next week, stay well. Keep in touch if you can. She is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>